Hello everyone and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? The UK's premier RPG podcast. I'm Gaz and with me as usual is my good friend Baz. How's it going Baz? I'm Baz. Alright, thank you mate. It's good to be at home. <laughs> <laughs> on, the only, on the proper podcast. Yeah, you've been moonlighting, haven't you? Uh, yes, yeah, in loads of different In my own podcast, which is weird, that I'm playing away with myself, which is... We'll draw Vail over that. Draw, <laughs> lines and veils, lines and veils. Uh, yes, I, I'm just back from the, the horrific confines of the good friends of Jackson and Elias. They found room for one more, uh, yeah. due to the terrible circumstances of Matt not being available. So, you know, couldn't have been worse circumstances, but they subbed me in instead for the true horror. Um, and uh, that was a really enjoyable experience. So I've just hot-footed it back from, from, uh, from their dank dungeon into our uh, bright, sunlit uplands of role-playing. Well, good to have you back. So, this time, I think we should talk campaigns, Baz. What do we want out of a good campaign book? We do talk a lot about like convention games, or one-shots, or uh, Session Zero, or starter things, and all the rest of it. But there's, a, there's a ton of published stuff out there, and people always talk about great campaigns, of which there's many that always come up in these conversations. But it might be useful for us to talk about what do we want to see in a campaign, but what makes a good campaign from the point of view of some published material, because we can all make our own campaigns just by running a session every week and then it naturally becomes one. But if you're gonna go out and buy some stuff, what what makes that good? Or if you're gonna write one, what would you put in it to make it cool? How's that grab you? Uh, a super topic, mate. So good that I thought about it before even showing up. So hooray. Well, it's a great topic, isn't it? Because I think uh, I think like like you, I feel that campaigns are the gold standard of gaming. They're where the real stuff happens. Everything else mm. is great. Love a one-shot. I mean, you know, the blog that preceded this podcast was called The One Shop Stop for Your One-Shot Slots. Something like that. <laughs> Which is, you know, now ably covered by the magnificent Guy Milner on his uh, Burn After Running blog. Um, mm-hmm. And we've, we've played hundreds, if not thousands, of one-shots. Um, but campaigns are where it's really at. That's where the good stuff is hiding, isn't it? Mm. And I think campaigns have in some ways never been more difficult to play as life gets busier and busier and as more and more stuff hits the marketplace. There are so many distractions that campaign play, I don't know if there's a, if there's a difference in like the ratio of campaign play to one-shot play nowadays to what there was back in the 80s, 90s, last century basically I have a feeling there are fewer campaigns getting played and if that's correct that's a shame mm, maybe yeah I don't have stats on that either I do wonder if it's maybe shorter campaigns so I know something mm-hmm. I like to do with some of my groups is like 6 to 8 sessions of something and that's a campaign where I guess if you speak to some old school gamers they'll say if you've not played it for 2 years then it's not a proper campaign that kind of thing and if we look to Critical Role or any of the streaming companies or sites or players that there are, they tend to run in seasons, mm. which I guess counts as a campaign. You know, L.A. by Night, for example, or something like that, has, what, six or eight episodes, and then that's a series or a season or whatever they call it, and they come back for more later. So they're all kind of campaigns. Short, though, aren't they? I'd, I'd, obviously, we could get into definition stuff here, and I think three sessions, not a campaign. Mm. hundred sessions, definitely a campaign and somewhere between those two is where a ca- where it stops being uh, a scenario or a couple of link scenarios and starts becoming an ongoing story and, and you alluded to this as well mate right at the top when you talked about if all you do is keep playing adventures 
and uh, let's say you're playing oh I don't know Mutant Year Zero and you're doing loads of little missions out there in the in the Radlands and coming back to your arc and go out and do another mission come back go out and do another mission once you've done 10 of those are you playing a campaign or is that just a long form of a one shot because campaigns I feel in my head are about more than just a long game or a long sequence of games where are you on that one so I think the things that can make it a campaign are stuff like character progression, which could just be within the system, that you level up and get new powers or become whatever. Um, I guess in the old days of D&D, you had a different name for what you were, and you were a, a cut, per, cut person, a foot pad, and a, all the way up to Master Thief and that kind of stuff. There's a bit of that. There's actually development to be character's story and perhaps elements like that that might evolve and they might get married or have children or you know all kinds of things can come out of it. And um, it might be the environment they're in. So you mentioned Mutant Year Zero, where you have a base in that, and you can add to it and expand it and stuff like that. So that gets bigger. So for it to actually be a campaign and not just a bunch of one shots, there has to be some kind of development. And mm. that's either going to be the character, either in terms of story or system, preferably both, or the environments around them, like the world shifts around them, or they they have impact on the world, which makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the, the key thing. Okay, well that makes sense. So w w there's definitely a length element to it, but it's far more than that, isn't it? It's about what you're doing with the, the stories that you've got in front of you. Um, does a campaign have to have, for example, um, an end to qualify as a campaign? Or or is an endless game without something planned or without any kind of denouement, is it just a campaign that hasn't finished? What do you think? I mean, we talked about seasons with Critical Role. They normally mm. have a climax, don't they? And any published adventure or published campaign is obviously going to be packed away at some point. It's got an end built in. Yeah, I, I, I think you, you sort of you hit on it there when you said um, endless, or is it not finished yet? And I think that's it. It's not that in people's heads it won't be endless necessarily, but they will just think they've not quite finished. And it's probably better if there is some kind of end game or end goal because otherwise uh, like long running TV shows I guess it's not that where they keep endlessly producing new series for it it just the quality goes down mm. and it's not about what it started out being and you've explored every angle of the characters and it's got a bit stayed anyway so you try and produce new ones but not really part of the old stuff that sort of thing will happen to your campaign if you don't have an end or drive towards something, it'll just kind of like wither and die on the vine, is how I find it. Or it's one of those things that, that fatal phrase we go, oh, we'll try something else, we'll come back to it later, and <laughs> you never go back to it. No. Is, is that campaign finished? I mean, technically it is because it's dead and you'll never go back to it, but it doesn't feel like it was finished. Yeah. So it, it's better to have something to drive towards or finish on a peak or look at some achievement, but that doesn't necessarily happen. Okay. One more question for you then to sort of like uh, put the put the lines around us, uh, the scope around our subject for tonight. Hmm. Sandbox, is that a campaign, that kind of style of play where you just have a wide open world and you can just drop some plays in and they can go where they want and some factions and agendas and things might be happening which they can either interact with or not? Or is a campaign much more likely to be scripted? I'd dare say, don't really want to say linear or railroad because those are pejorative terms, but you have a through line that has to be followed for that to be, cons to be considered as a campaign. I think you want both. So uh, examples we'll probably get into, but something like 50 Fathoms, mm -hmm. 
for Savage Worlds, a sort of piratey campaign, their first plot point campaign on the best they've done, has that kind of overarching plot, but it's not something you have to follow in a defined sequence and only do that. But it also has a sandboxy world and mixing those two elements together where do allow players their own freedom to do what they want because that's what they want to do in campaign and to explore their own characters and build their own subplots but has some structure in the background which is going to take on a journey and come to a conclusion at the end with some end of level boss thing that you need to sort out at the end so I think either could be a campaign that the former being sandboxy has got the potential to just endlessly go around in circles and not really go anywhere and feel a bit unsatisfying and if something's absolutely nailed down into what needs to happen in what sequence, it can feel like you're on somebody else's journey and following yep. somebody else's story rather than writing your own. So for me, a better uh, way of doing it is kind of a compromise between the two. Not even a compromise, but including both elements. So you want some thread. It's a bit like, I keep referring back to TV shows, but it does seem to have a lot of similarities. Like you kind of want Monster of the Week episodes, but also there's like a plot that's happening as well. Mm-hmm. Like X-Files or something had the a big alien subplot in the background but every now and again it was just kind of some weird thing living in the sewer or whatever else and distractions and other things and that's what maintained the interest you can't be on the the mainline path all the time or it gets boring you can't be wandering in the wilderness all the time or it gets a bit mushy yes yeah yeah and that's the balance isn't it I guess when we come to talk about our favourite campaigns you'll be recommending ones I'll be recommending ones that probably strike that balance just nicely hmm Cool. Or some give you the ideas, and you might have to add rather than yourself. Mm. You know, there might be a really good linear campaign, but you'd have to add more to it yourself to make it sing. Or it could be a good sandbox, but needs a bit more structure, and you need to decide yourself what the antagonist or the main storyline is going to be. So let me throw this one at you then, mate. Just before we get into some individual campaigns of merit, I've had a bit of a think about this. I think about this a lot because I run a lot of published games, I've run a lot of published campaigns actually just because I'm old I've tried to distill it down into what sort of types of campaign there are and I've come up with three so I've got it down to this it'd be interesting to see if you think this this is viable categorization stuff or taxonomy of campaigns I think you've got the guided tour campaign which is um, one of those campaigns that takes you all over the setting um, visiting countries locations of note that kind of thing so an example might be for Stormbringer, there was a campaign called Rogue Mistress, where you've mm-hmm. got a flying ship and it takes you all around the world. And those are pretty common. The other one, and probably slightly more common, is the End of the World campaign, where it is all about a massive plot that is going to build to a huge finale that will probably be world-shaking, if not world-ending. It might be a big ritual. If that's your... Your, your, your classic stuff like the enemy within campaign I guess for Warhammer it's going to lead to a really big deal and the world won't be the same afterwards right and you can blend those two for sure mm-hmm. like Master of Nihilethotep would probably be a bit of both anyway my third one is kind of fantasy specific but you can see it in other games too and that would be the Mega Dungeon so it's just one massive location that you can play in for years and years and years playing factions off against each other progressing through the system as well as through the setting probably because it's a mega dungeon going level by level etc so it's one place but you are like rinsing it maybe leaving it and coming back again repeatedly but you're you're really playing a game within the campaign so those are my three big types and i'm sure there'll be outliers but i was struggling to think of campaigns that don't drop into one of those categories 
So how are we doing as that for a starter for 10? I think that's not bad, actually. I mean, we can mess about with it a little bit. Like, it doesn't have to be a mega dungeon. It could be a mega location. Or yes. Or that sort of thing. So, that, yeah, you can tweak it a little bit. But, yeah, yeah. I think they're broadly what most of the... I suppose the only other thing I think of is, like I was saying, the big bad. Mm-hmm. There's, like, some... Which which possibly falls under the underworld category, but I think there are sometimes just like there's the enemy nation to be taken down, or there's a king that needs usurping or something. So it might not be an underworld mm. thing, but there's a kind of changing the status quo. I yeah. don't know if that counts. Yeah, I think by the end of the world, I probably mean uh, the world will be changed by this campaign, one yeah. way or another. Yeah. 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 Okay. Agreed. Yeah, I'm happy with that. Right, we've got something to go with then, haven't we? I looked at some mechanical differentiation as well. The difference between what we might call an adventure path, um, which is championed by Paizo with their releases for Pathfinder, Starfinder, etc. So like those kind of big episodic things where it's a little bit linear because you kind of have to go through book one, book two, book three, etc. Right. And then the one you've already talked about, which is comes from Savage Worlds, who did it brilliantly, um, which is Plot Points, which is semi-sandbox but with a through line mm-hmm. those were the sort of two mechanical things that I could think of because I, l- like you I think if it's pure sandbox for me that doesn't really count as a campaign mm-hmm. yeah agreed so you might have to tell me about adventure paths but just for our listeners our on 50 fellas on plot points generally from, from Savage Worlds is there'll be some uh, Savage Tales some like adventures that you have to do that'll be along that are plot points basically <laughs> things will be happening in the game world that will lead to the finale at the end and there might be say six of those and then in between that you'll have a bunch of little savage tales which be a bunch of locations on a map each map's got a thing that's happening there and then there's some adventures that might link those things up and say go to this island to speak to this guy or go out and clear these mermaids out of this watery cave or do whatever it is and they might cross over all over each other, but mainly the kind of like bangs they call them in indie games quite often. It's like, I go to this place, what's there? And you'll have something interesting to happen and appointed to somewhere else. Mm. And it might be that following the big overarching campaign, you end up going to somewhere you've already been, but that's all right. It's a little bit like playing, I don't know, Fallout or a computer game where sometimes you just go wandering around and do stuff. And it's not till you do the missions later on, you get told to go to the, the big factory on the edge of the lake. And you go, oh, I've been there, I've done I wonder what that was all about. Um, so you get a bit of familiarity. So it's it's that kind of um, you can you can go anywhere and do anything, but quite often it'll be linked into something else. So you, you're constantly involved. I think it's probably mm-hmm. the what stops it being just completely sandboxy is there's always an arrow pointed to somewhere else on the map to go and do something else. Yeah, and and sooner or later you're going to bump into something that's part of the big plot. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really, uh, for what it's worth, I love plot point campaigns. I think they were a really, really clever invention. They're actually quite old now, and Savage Worlds has done them for all of their games, haven't they? You, mm-hmm. if you, in fact, if you buy a Savage Worlds setting book, uh, say Deadlands, for example, they normally come packaged with a plot point campaign, and and they're often of that kind of guided tour mentality as well, aren't they? Like yeah. You're going to see a bit of everything here. Uh, so hop on board, um, but you're not on a train, and it's not just making a sequence of stops. There'll be loads of little excursions when we get to a new town. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the adventure path is um, is a, is way more classic than that. Classic as in traditional, I suppose. So um, if I sort of describe how Paizo have done theirs for years and years now, they would have six instalments, which they would normally bring out one a month. 
So if you're trying to keep up at home, you'd be playing playing your bum off, really, trying to get <laughs> through it, because you go for like one month before the next one hits. And um, an Adventure Path book would have an adventure in it and some supplementary material as well. So some extra background on whichever region it is they're covering, spells, magic items, monsters, that kind of thing. But the adventure would be the main draw. And the first adventure would introduce the entire campaign. So it'd be like classic low-level stuff, levels one to three. It could be played standalone. You would just play that. And then when you finished it, you can either carry on with the loose ends that that first adventure gives you, or you could just walk away and start or start your own campaign based on the loose ends that you've got. But typically what people would do is get book two, then book three, then book four, book five, book six. And each of them would be sequential. And because of the way that D&D and Pathfinder work, you could work your way out for your levels. They would max out at about level 14, level 15, something like that. So by the time you've been through these six adventures, which all stack neatly onto each other end to end, you can't do them in any order you want. You can't skip one, Hmm. but you could just pluck one out and play it as a one shot. So if you wanted like a ninth level adventure, you'd probably pick book three of one of these adventure paths. And there would be, you know, it would be have introductions into it for just about anyone, but it would have the big introduction would be, you have come here from this previous book. So it's a chain sequence of adventures. Hmm. Not unlike um, stuff like Master of Nilethotep, or more likely um, the uh, horror on the Orient Express for Call of Cthulhu, where you've got different city for each adventure and they're all in a sequence. Right. Yeah. Um, and pies I've done were two of them a year since Pathfinder came out. And one's for Starfinder as well, which actually tend to be a bit shorter. They might just do three books in the sequence. And, and there must be, I'm not entirely sure how many there are now, but it'll be into hundreds. Hmm. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. I'm thinking of that kind of like a more linear approach. One of the ones I really liked is the the line ended, but they managed to get through more. Was um for was called Aeon originally. I think there's some kind of licensing thing, so it became Trinity very quickly. Which is a White Wolf game with um, psionics. So you you had like some psychic powers of some sort or other, or psionic powers, and it was based in the solar system. There were a couple of alien species rocking around, but you couldn't play them as as play characters and they're stuck on Mars and on the moon and all around the world and it was something like they sent into darkness or darkness revealed that was it, it was like That's a three, right. po- yeah. three parts and it took in a bit of a tour around the solar system to different places so the adventures took took part on uh, the moon and Mars I think later on and some other places so that gave the players a campaign where they were actually experiencing all the information in the game books all the background rather than having to do an info dump Mm-hmm. or anything like that you got to see it and then there was the two alien encounters books which brought the alien stuff into it which was quite interesting I did some reveals for the GM as well as the players but that was it there was kind of like a five part thing and then it was done and they didn't release anything more for the game after that really a couple of splat books but that's a bit of a shame but that, that's um, a way of doing the tourism thing that you mentioned the guided tour um, in a way that's accessible for everyone if you know what I mean like because the mm-hmm. GM learnt about the world as he went along by getting the adventure books and reading what was yeah. going on and that kind of stuff so that, that's another another aspect or I, I guess a corporate aspect I don't know but like it, it was an interesting way of doing a campaign even though it's quite linear and you had to do it in order as you've mentioned and that kind of stuff giving everybody the setting but doing mm-hmm. it as you play rather than having to know it in advance or worry about player knowledge or anything like that you, you reveal it through doing the game yes it's, it's just a shame that that ended because that kind of like completed the world if you know what I mean like did you, did you grand tour 
and then it's like it's all over to you. I could have done with um, a second campaign that's like now all this is in motion and you know what the factions <laughs> are and all the rest of it. Now something exciting happens and it, it was sort of like hinted at it at the end of the last book, and then for whatever reason the, the game line discontinued. I think it's like a starter campaign, isn't it? Yeah, it's it felt like it. It felt like I'm ready to go now. Yeah. <laughs> then it was all over. White Wolf pulled the same trick with Orpheus. You remember Orpheus? Yes. I yeah. loved Orpheus. Now, I'm going to need to explain Orpheus, not to you guys, but I don't think many people are aware of Orpheus. Same as Trinity, probably. But Orpheus was um, was a little spin-off line that White Wolf did back in the 90s when White Wolf did everything. And to be fair to White Wolf, or sorry, to be to be a bit harsh on White Wolf, their adventures were generally terrible. They weren't really an adventure writing company and, and their games didn't really support published adventures in the way that we would know them anyway. Right. So it's not entirely their fault, but they were pretty trashy. People did their own thing. But in the case of Trinity, they really did give you a campaign. And Orpheus was another go they had. Similar in some ways to Wraith, but the idea is you play uh, paranormal investigators where you're investigating uh, ghosts and hauntings and that kind of stuff. And you're a part of a corporation, so not unlike Ghostbusters, but deadly serious because it was White Wolf. Um, but the unique selling point was that some of you could be ghosts. So not mm. only were you humans, you might have a spirit, a ghost is like one of your squad, or you'd be something in between, which I think they called a sleeper. I can't quite remember now. Which is a, a human that went into uh, into a cryo tank, and their spirit could leave their body and temporarily right. yeah. could be a ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, and you work for the Orpheus Foundation. So there's the Orpheus core book that gives you all the rules, all that stuff that I've just said, and loads of ideas how to play. But the last page in the Orpheus core book said you're going to want to want you're going to want the next book, and there were six books came out for Orpheus, all of which were just like you mentioned, Gaz. They were all source books of a kind, but they were but you were led through the source book by the adventure that ran through it. And I don't think it is a spoiler to say this now, but I, and I'll keep it detail light. But in book one, you went off and did loads of investigations, and you're having loads of fun playing Orpheus. At the end of book one, Orpheus is radically changed by an event. Radically mm-hmm. changed. In fact, you could almost throw away your core book. Yeah. <laughs> it was like ripped in half. Mm. And and then the rest of the books in that sequence took you through a really epic storyline that was just almost nothing like the one you'd bought into. It was a little bit bait and switch, I suppose, but it was big. I never finished it. But I got into it and I read it all through and would have loved to have played it. But it was much more of a sort of an interactive novel than mm. perhaps something where yeah. you've got complete agency. Yeah. So they, they tried it a couple of times. I think Trinity was more successful, wasn't it? But Orpheus was an experiment. Yeah, Trinity was good. I think Orpheus was always only ever going to be six books. So they at least did that that's and, it. and completed it. So that, that's one thing. Yeah, a lot of the White Wolf stuff, it's hit and miss. Like one of the really good ones that people mention for vampires, Chicago by Night. Hmm. And uh, you know, people rave about how great that is, and it is good, but it's more a selection of characters and locations and stuff they're up to. Mm-hmm. So, so you would not recognise it if you're used to the Trinity campaign or something like that, or an adventure path. You'd be kind of wondering, what do I do with this? Because it doesn't give you <laughs> scenarios per se. It just kind of says like, this is the situation, do something with it. So that's more the sandbox, the end of things. But you know, as I say, it's loaded, and they've, they've re-released it or Onyx Path out, I think, recently. Yeah. But then there's other stuff where it has, um, I think it was a Transylvania Chronicles or something like that. It's, it was going to tell you how um, your characters went from, I don't know, Dark Ages through to modern day or something. I thought, oh, this, this will be cool. Hmm. This will lay out for me how you journey from being just like a neonate vampire to being a prince of a city or something. Right, cool, ace. 
So you read the first adventure and you go around, you mess around defending this tower or something, think, fine, cool. Turn the page up, it says, okay, it's now 80 years later, and by now your characters are probably princes. <laughs> and it's like, are you taking the proverbial? Like, like, in the space of one adventure, I'm apparently supposed to backfill 80 years myself for my players. What like what are the other two books about, let alone the rest yeah. of this book? You know what I mean? So, the, yeah, the they always have grand ideas, the White Wolf. I don't think the execution's necessarily there. No. And quite often the scenarios ignored the bias that the books gave you about what to do and what not to do. I think Constantinople's another one. Constantinople by night, that's got um, or one of the scenarios that comes with it. It's kind of has um, a vampire that's been there 70 years and he's one of the lowest of the lot because, you know, mm. the, the newest and youngest of the vampires so gets kicked about a lot. And then you introduce your player character. It's like, well, are they not beneath him then? Because they've not been here for seventy years. So like, I don't like a lot of. I think a lot of their um, structuring was done from I don't know uh, in piecemeal, perhaps. Yeah. That people writing adventures hadn't been involved in the core book, maybe, or someone writing a campaign didn't know what someone else was going to do as the introductory adventure of that campaign or something. All over the place a little bit. So yeah, the White Wolf stuff's generally good for ideas and good for sandboxy stuff. Um, whether they made the best campaigns. I don't know. I'll leave that up for individual listeners to decide, and maybe phoning in and tell us. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it, although it feels harsh to like bash a company that's not really been doing that for like twenty odd years now. I do. I do recall that what everybody wanted to do was to have adventures where you could have a vampire, a werewolf, a ghost, a mage, and a fae. They mm. wanted to do the big crossovers, didn't they? Which, which White Wolf always kind of toyed around with, but never really got behind until they decided to blow up all the first edition stuff by having a big kind of Armageddon um, yeah. sort of it was almost it was more like Secret Wars in Marvel Comics where they just loads of crossover stuff a little bit yeah rather than here's a sequence of things that you can go on with your group to play this out it was more like you did you did your Wraith bit or you did your Rage <laughs> bit and it kind of got that um, the White Wolf production line was all very much like the players know like not that much less than the gem knows quite often. Like the gem, yeah. you had to wait for the next book to find out what was going on with a certain thing, and more stuff was always hinted at. So you're always like encouraged to buy new books, which is mm-hmm. a perfectly fine business model. But the disappointing thing was when it came to Gehenna and the end of the world. If they were all finally all this stuff they've been talking about and whispering about in the background, we'll all get to work out how it ends and what the big yeah. plot is. And the book was just like, well, here's some options of what it could be. Like pick one. It's like that's not that's not a satisfying yeah. end to a campaign. That's you no. telling me to do whatever I want, which I could do anyway without buying any books. <laughs> yeah, you had to collect them all to get the full story, didn't you? I think yeah. I think the very very final paragraph was in Wraith, because which it would be because everyone's dead in that already. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's get more up to date, mate. Well, maybe we won't be getting more up to date. Let's talk about our favourite campaigns and and why we like them, shall we? Mm. And you want to go first, mate? What's what's your contender? Whether it counts as a campaign based on our previous conversation, I'm not too sure about <laughs> We killed it by defining it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but um, there's elements to it which I like, uh, and that's why I recommend it. It's Prelude to War, which is uh, Earth Dawn, so I'm still stuck in the 90s, I'm afraid. Yeah, we yeah, might yeah, even have gone true. backwards from White Wolf, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, what I liked about it is that it, in previous scenarios and background stuff that you got in Earth Dawn, it had been setting up the world. In, in how it looked, who the king was in the certain areas and all this kind of stuff that was all laid out for you. And then what Prelude to War did was set the clock running and give you, I think, four or five major events which call back to things that your players have probably done in some of the scenarios that you had uh, and evolved 
dragons and the Theron Empire invading and all kinds of things like this. It, it was a way of moving things forward for the game world and your players were involved. So you were, you were at, either at key events or taking part in a major battle or involved because you'd had some experience with this person who turned out to be whatever, the sign of a dragon or something like that. That's that kind of big, bold stuff we're talking about with campaigns. So it wasn't linear. You didn't get fully statted out, plotted adventures. But you got these are events that are going to change the status quo and mm -hmm. your players get to do something about it or be involved with it. And, that, and then what you actually did in terms of a week-by-week week, the game that you had at your table, you probably had to do that yourself. Mm. But it was a nice framework to put over the top of these cool things are going to happen and then weave in the, your normal campaign as it's going. Because the other thing with campaign books or any other scenarios you get is that quite often you're running your own campaign, you're writing your own stuff, your players got their own things going on, you as a GM mm -hmm. of ideas. So how do you write a campaign to give to someone and say include that with everything else you've already been talking about for the last two years or however long you've been playing with your players? So it was a nice way of uh, moving the game world on while also allowing a lot of integration with what you've been doing. It was just giving you the big broad brushstrokes Mm. And I thought that was a really neat idea. Yeah. Yeah, this was from the time where Metaplot was, was kind of a big deal for most games line, game lines. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Earthdawn had an awful lot of content released for it. I think my shelf was about three feet wide at one point. It was mm. huge. Yeah. Bigger probably than 5e has managed in its six years to date. <clears throat> Absolutely massive. And I had all the box sets like you did, Gaz. They didn't really do a lot of campaigns for them. They did a few adventures, more than a yeah. few adventures. And adventures in box sets as well, like Skypoint um, or Thrall Adventures. But the campaign didn't really start because I think what they did was they gave it a few years, kind of got their fan base up and running. Everybody was doing their own stuff, knocking around bar, say, go in here, go in there. And then they just pressed go on the timeline, didn't they? Really, that That's was right. it. It just went from all of the books said it was, I'll get this wrong, 1502 or whatever the year was, mm -hmm. to suddenly like, now this is what's going to happen. And um, and they very cleverly, as you say, managed to provide you with a campaign framework which you could drape over whatever you'd been doing. And unless you'd had some big NPCs assassinated like a year ago, you could probably work it in without too much hassle. Uh, but it definitely hit the green the green light for motion <laughs> in this campaign. Because right. it, it couldn't be the same afterwards, could it? Your campaign could not be the same afterwards if you ran Prelude to War. No. Which was the last thing that was published for first edition? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah, yeah, because they, they had they had the dragons book was more or less written, yeah, um, but didn't ever actually got properly published. It just got leaked to link online. That's right, that's right. And Bar Save at War was the first source book for the when it got bought by another company sometime later. That's so right. they basically they left us with Prelude to War, didn't they? Yeah, that my three foot of, of shelf never got to four feet. It, just, <laughs> it was almost like off you go now you run my pretties you know how to do this game you don't need us anymore right yeah and if anybody out there in listener land wants to hear the full story you can always skip back through our episodes till we talk to Lewis J. Prisperi he'll yes. tell you the full story of why that game line ended yeah, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. I know metaplots within metaplots right so oh, I'm gonna we are going back in time <laughs> so we started in the 90s it's getting worse just because classic, if we're going to do classic campaigns, that's your classic campaign. I cannot do this episode without one of us at least talking about the enemy within. Mm -hmm. And as the person who's run it multiple times, I'm claiming it. Yeah, well, that's fine. <laughs> because that's a gap. I know that's a gap in your 
playing CV, isn't it? And GMing CV. Yeah, I've, we've started playing it. That's one of the, the games I'm in currently. Yeah, yeah. So the enemy within was uh, was a campaign for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Uh, it came out for first edition and is hailed as definitely one of the big masterpieces of the published campaigns. And there's there's some truth to that certainly. The weird thing about the enemy within is that it's, and I think even its biggest fans would admit this, it's patchy. It's definitely patchy. Mm-hmm. So it's made up of, of various blocks. So it's a bit like an adventure path that I was describing before. Uh, it starts off with Shadows Over Bogenhafen. There's a little bit before that, but it's really Shadows Over Bogenhafen. Then Death on the Reich, which originally came out as a box set. And then you end up in Middenheim and you're playing Power Behind the Throne. Then there's this massive side quest that takes you to Fantasy Russia something rotten in Kislev then you come back from that and it's all Empire in Flames which kind of is a bit of a giveaway from the title (laughs) so you've really got these five big adventures which are quite big on their own and they're all strung together and much like people still do now when they list the nine Star Wars films in order of goodness Mm -hmm. everybody does this with with Enemy Within (laughs) And, (laughs) and Power Behind the Throne which I think is possibly the greatest adventure ever written uh, so it, and it sits in the middle of this campaign so that's for me that lifts up the whole thing nightmare to run but a beautiful just a perfect example of a city intrigue based political adventure so good so good and I think death on the Reich is a really good example of the guided tour element of the empire where you, you're on a canal boat and you're heading all over the empire doing troubleshooting and there's a big metaplot rolling along behind you as you're getting chased or, or chasing some big bads it's got a really strong start in, in shadows over Bogenhafen, which is call a cthulhu adventure set in the warhammer world <laughs> something rotten in kislev nobody has a good word to say about at all except me i thought it was great but it's written by Ken Rolston, so I would think that. But he was subbed in and did a contract piece to write this stuff, and it just didn't have any kind of connective tissue to the rest of the campaign at all. So it was very often skipped by people doing it. Yeah. And then it just and it finished on a massive damp squib of Empire in Flames, which I never actually completed because it just fizzles, which is a terrible way to end the campaign. Um, mm. But with a reasonably strong start that just escalated up to a magnificent middle and then tailed off again, for a game that was coming out, this would have been 87, 88, the enemy within started coming. This was good stuff. And and it put it into the pantheon of great campaigns alongside those box sets for Call of Cthulhu, which had held the crown for so long beforehand. Right, yeah. So massive fan of enemy within. And Cubicle 7 have done a top-notch job of putting it back out again with director's cuts and additional material. It's real prestige stuff. They've dropped the something rotten in Kislev and brought in the horned rat, which is a completely different chapter, which was originally supposed to be there. <laughs> Got the original authors on board. Oh my goodness me, you can get enough enemy within to last you till you die. So it's still very much a current campaign that's also somehow 35 years old. I don't know how it does it. <laughs> yeah, as I said, I've just started it um, again with one one group. I've, I've started it so many times. <laughs> that first adventure, I could really do without. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> it's the pub, isn't it? There's yeah, the people in the yeah. pub. <laughs> I know they're all intimately now. <laughs> yes, and they're on the stagecoach, and then things happen. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. That's one of the secrets, I think, though, of a classic campaign is that you could talk to another gamer at a convention 
or someone might write, write into our podcast and we've all got those shared experiences that's a great thing about campaigns you can have yes. those about adventures as well but everybody who's played the enemy within will know about the mistaken identity bit Mm-hmm. Everybody who's done it will, and we will all. Everyone will go. Oh, yeah, that was, did did that to you, or was it one? Of the, oh, right, yeah, yeah, we all did that too. You can't <laughs> not do it. It's quite nice to have those shared experiences. Yeah, no, uh, I agree, agree. Uh, while we're still back in time, then I'll I'll give a quick nod towards uh, a Legend of the Five Rings box set. Oh, which was uh, City of Lies by Greg Stolze, another good friend of the show. What that was interesting for, you just reminded me when you said like political intrigue and stuff like that, is um, Legend of the Fire Rings goes about the Scorpion clan and how they're possibly up to no good or mm. they're always seen as the bad boys. That gives you a bit more behind the scenes about that, but um, there's like political shenanigans going around. You, you kind of go around to investigate and find out what's going on and stuff. Uh, it's got particularly good use of unreliable narrators which is cool because I think most of the time when you're in games you like you go places and you make a persuasion roll and you get some information and that's cool you're on to the next plot uh, City was more about you go somewhere you speak to the magistrate and make your roll and he gives you what he thinks is the right information based on what he thinks and knows his preferences but then you speak to someone else and they'll have a completely different story or be slightly different or what else it's just got loads of stuff to uncover and layers and um, I think one of the good things about it this is, this is something we lament as well is the lack of box sets is it was a box set with some maps and other stuff in as well. Yeah. And that was always a cool thing. So, yeah, City of Lies is worth looking into uh, if you like your intriguey stuff and do things a different way. Because I guess at this point in time as well, there's a lot of um, sort of D&D campaigns, which might be Mega Dungeons and Temple yeah. of Elemental Evil and all that kind of stuff. So looking at different ways of doing a campaign or other things you might be doing other than going into dungeons, that's a, a good other direction to go in for starters. Yes. Yeah, some of my favourite campaigns have that kind of city element to them. Um, I have Secrets, uh, City of Secrets, actually. I've got it on PDF. I don't own another Legend of the Five Rings book, not one, but on the merit of that author and the way that that, that campaign is spoken about, I've got it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a really good read as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we've sort of mentioned the Cthulhu ones as well, so we might as well get them out of the way. Yeah. Well, I'm not going out of the way, but... <laughs> this is an interesting one it's might be a meta question but is a campaign still a campaign if the characters that you end with weren't the ones you all started with oh like Trigger's Broom like yeah. every yes. element of it's been changed or the Sugar Babes that's right if everybody's on the third or fourth <laughs> character is it still actually a campaign that you did I mean you as players did it but the characters have all changed and the well, reasons why they're all there has got nothing to do with why they started and various other things <laughs> Now this you you you're teeing me up here for one of my pet peeves, aren't you? Yeah. So, I I would say that um, you only get away with this because it's called a Cthulhu, and you know I would insert my normal boilerplate stuff about investigations here, which is that when you're playing Call of Cthulhu, you're not playing a character anyway. You can't help but play it as the player. So I think if you end up going through six characters and go through Egypt and Australia and Kenya and all the rest of it, and you end up, you know, back where you started and you've done it all but you're four characters in I don't think you would even notice in Call of Cthulhu I <laughs> wouldn't I wouldn't right yeah and and then but you could say similar things about uh, your D&D style games especially OSR games where you could be on your third character by the third dungeon room and probably are in the in the real sort of like fantasy Vietnam games that we all started with 
Temple sure. of Elemental Evil is just going to have piles of corpses by the door, isn't it? Before you, you get going. But I, I think it's a really valid question, Gaz. So if a campaign, there could be a definition of it. It's, it's that the characters go on a story from beginning to end, like we're thinking Lord of the Rings with Frodo. Hmm. Literally yeah. go on a journey and go on an emotional journey, but it doesn't. they don't swap hobbits halfway through, do they? No. So, you know, Lord of the Rings feels like a campaign, doesn't it? I don't think there are many campaign arcs in other media where the main protagonists are different at the end than they were at the beginning. So maybe not. Which I think brings into it is... It's that thing, again, about your, your, your characters developing, I think, is part of the campaign play. Mm. Even if we think back to stuff like uh, Games Workshop days, and I <laughs> I got frowned at in one of the managers' meetings, but I was, I was saying... One of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that big annual event, and yeah, I think it's Stellar or someone was not impressed with me. But I was, I was advocating for things like Necromunda because that had an element, or like Blood Bowl, where you let your team members level up EXP. Yeah. And it's okay, it's a war game or whatever, but the fact that it had a campaign element to it that you, you know, your star player might get injured in Blood Bowl, or you might recruit two new scavs in for your Necromunda gang and give them a new kit. That was all interested, and, and certainly running games now as DW managers, that's the sort of thing you wanted. You wanted your, your kids to come back every week and have developed mm-hmm. their teams and have some rivalries going on and things like that. It's that kind of like um, development of what you have, your, your resource, whether it's a player character or whatever. That's what I think really drives a lot of campaigns. It's what you do and the stories you go through and the things you've been on. I think that's yeah. what adds to it. Um, although there are different modes of play and I know some people like playing Call of Cthulhu a bit more like uh, they're being told a story for example so they're just more interested in what was the mystery and they don't really care about whether their vehicle into the story dies along the way and they have to have several of them mm. just to go through the whole journey and find out what it's all about well, you'll know the answer to this one one of the, the great campaigns that people talk about and I have no experience of at all is the Great Pendragon campaign mm. do you go through generations in the Great Pendragon campaign, I think Pendragon generally you do, don't you? That that's sort of the goal. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't. I'm not a massive advocate of it. Everybody mentions that all the time. As soon as you say campaign, somebody will say Great Pendragon campaign. It's got campaign in the title. And great. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And if you're into Pendragon, well, you're on a winner, aren't you? Hat trick. Yeah. Um, but so, certainly the early years, uh, not a lot happens, and a lot of the scenarios are you go and fight some Saxons. It's quite weak. Later on, it's signpost stuff and say, in this year, this thing's supposed to happen. And you can kind of get the Arthurian legend or a version of it by events that happen in the campaign, and you get older and have children and, and so on and so forth. Hmm. Uh, but I don't, I really don't rate it as a as a good resource. I think it's a, certainly in the early stages where it's just fighting Saxons a lot and nothing much is happening. Hmm. That's not a good example of a campaign. That's really mundane. You get more joy, or I certainly have from playing all the classic scenarios for Pendragon and stringing together as a campaign and they become a campaign because your night gets more glorious in that game when you write your XP down which is glory you write a little sentence as well on the back of your character sheet for what it was for you know slay the dolorous worm or uh, rescued this damsel from such a thing or whatever it is and then as you go back and look through these one shot adventures ostensibly that you're doing you'll see you've got a big list of all your Royal of Honor and all the things you did and you can all look back together as players and, oh, do you remember we did this thing and have mm. callbacks to stuff. Uh, and it's that growth of knights and the, the people they may marry and the domestic manners they may accumulate and 
as you say, have children and maybe even play them one day. That's what makes a campaign. I don't think the great Pedro campaign, certainly for the first part of it, does a great job in supporting that. I think it's more a campaign for the sake of it early. Later on, you get some of the big like highlights that you're supposed to get in Theory of Legends kind of get dropped in. So it becomes more interesting from that perspective. But I'm still going to advocate for a campaign should be about the players and not about some of the random story that's happening in the background that you get told. That's tricky though, isn't it? Mm. When you're writing an adventure, it's tricky enough to make it make it about the, the the invisible characters. You don't even know what the characters are going to be for some adventures, do you? Because you send it off to some GM in yeah. another country on the other side of the world and they're playing with the characters they have that come around their house every Tuesday. It's hard <laughs> enough. And yeah. obviously as a campaign goes on, you're getting potentially further and further away from whatever that GM wanted at their table. It's you, you I think you with some campaigns most campaigns you kind of need to hop on board and appreciate that there is a campaign trail to be followed yeah uh, plot point definitely I think for the win but you can't really go independent and go off the reservation with this stuff too soon because the the back half of the campaign in some ways has got to be harder to predict than the front half of the campaign yeah it makes it tricky doesn't it yeah I know what you're saying uh, and as we mentioned there's methods of doing it so one of the ones that I've not, I'll, full disclosure, I've not run or played in, but I've seen played and heard about plenty, is the Dracula dossier mm-hmm. for Knights Black Agents. Uh, and that, as I understand it, has got um, different ideas all the way along for what where you could go with it or what, what could be next, if you know what I mean. So I've seen yep. it played at um, one of the garrison events there was sort of four guys and they got the full on murder board outside in the veranda they got like the red bits of string between pictures of uh, protagonists or antagonists rather and they got old notes everywhere and they're deciphering stuff and a table covered with all these different photographs and maps and things like that looked amazing uh, but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily defined what the end was going to be like they were getting to an end was, you know Dracula's involved at the end so you know that's what's going to come in but yeah. it was about making the journey from where you are now to get to Dracula and do something about him and how you get there that was kind of what made the campaign special so Mm. I think you can have endings uh, but there can be like multiple threads through it and a lot of choice for players which then make it more about the players and their journey then even though you know where you're going to end up if you know what I mean it's kind of making the middle bit sort of like spread out and then come back together again at the end yeah 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 Dracula dossier was on my list as well same as you Matt I've not played it um and so I'm not going to claim to be an expert at all. I'm slightly intimidated by it, hmm. to be honest. I, I I feel like with a lot of things, you need to have a free Ken height in every box to make it really work. <laughs> and, and Ken's probably not available to come around my house and run it for me, unfortunately. I wish he would. The invitation's there, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on over. It was him and Gar, wasn't it? Like, go throw yeah. down there and wrote a lot of it as well. So, yeah, um, yeah he features in some other things. Um, you're more of a 13th age buff than I have you seen Eyes of the Stone Thief that's yeah, another one that people talk about I wish you hadn't brought it up I think oh. it's oh is this, oh, is this like a not a is this a one everyone has one bad LP or something this is... <laughs> <laughs> Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is the finest writer of adventures that this hobby has ever known there's right, that okay and he has a long and storied back catalogue that you can dip into and you will be delighted at every turn I think Eyes of the Stone Thief is not as good as people say 
it's still good but I don't think it deserves the absolute stone cold classic status that it seems to get okay um, I think it's way too big and it's unusual to say that about a campaign but it was a, definitely a victim of Kickstarter bloat it's oh, a right. massive thing it's I mean Gareth Ryder, Ryder Hanrahan must be the only man who's ever read all of it it's, <laughs> and he would have read it more than once because he'd have had to redraft it time and time and time again. Yeah, that's true. It is. It is so big that every time I've started to play it, I have not been able to find the start. Wow. Now, it sounds like an unusual thing to say. That is unusual. And hopefully, people will write in and tell me where the first page is because it isn't on page one. Because there is so much prologue and so much you could do this and you could do that and so many different ways of folding into your existing campaign and so much backstory stuff you could have done because it doesn't start at first level that actually it's like well where does it start where, where do I turn to to get this thing underway and it turns out you had to have done a bunch of stuff before you can bring it to your table so the first piece of advice you read is read this then go and play your game for quite a while then come back when you've got it all teed up wow and it's like really? And so I've ignored all of that and tried to get it started a few times. And it's one of those mega dungeons you go in and come out of quite a bit. It's all very much bits and pieces that are welded together with moving parts. So the dungeon moves around. And I just don't think it, it really hangs together that amazingly well. I'm sorry to say. The individual set pieces are chef's kiss brilliant. There are some absolutely drop-dead gorgeous mini encounters, mini adventures almost. But the way they're put together is by necessity a little bit cut and shut. And there's so much of it. There is just so much. Has anyone finished it? Really? And and that's the trouble with a lot of these big campaigns, isn't it? They're, yeah. they're more like life's ambitions, you know, to to do Master of Nyarlathotep with all of the handouts, mm. to to do all of Eyes of the Stone Thief, to complete Dracula Dossier, one long session. They're almost like the Everests of the gaming world, aren't they? So Eyes of the Stone Thief for 13th Age is a good, very good sequence of adventures for 13th Age and the fantasy stuff that goes with it that is put together with professionalism and is abundant in its good stuff, but I think it's very difficult to play. Okay. And for, th for that, I am out. <laughs> okay, good. So that still sounds like a good resource for going and getting stuff out of there. You'd, I would strip mine it for bits. Yeah. And I think it says you should do that as well. But when you've got a nearly 400-page book and you can't play it without doing other things, you think life's too short? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, in happier news, there's stuff like The Darkening of Mirkwood and yes. Tales of the Windland and a lot of the uh, the, the One Ring stuff that um, I know I was involved in some of it, certainly. And that is more linear. From We've been mm. talking about some of the free-flowing stuff. But um, certainly the earlier adventure book for the One Ring, I liked it. It kind of give you a flavour of different styles of Tolkien game you could play. There was like four adventures and they're all different. So that's not really campaign-y. But then they kicked off the campaign bit. And again, although more linear, I think when you're playing something licensed, that's actually all right. Mm. If you know what I mean. So as much as I'm saying generally I prefer a bit more freedom about the players, it should be about the players' actions... I think if you are playing in Middle Earth, for example, you kind of want to make sure you maintain the flavour of the source material of it, so yeah. that 
probably makes it all right. And I guess the same could be said for probably Star Trek Adventures and things like that. Is you, you still want to be based around doing the things they do in the TV shows. You wouldn't want a sci-fi game where you never set foot on a Star Trek uh, starship, for example, playing mm-hmm. Star Trek Adventures. You want your campaign to be around those sort of things. So I guess there has been a caveat to what I said previously that if you're going for an IP or something that where there's a shared knowledge about what things should look like and how it should go, there's probably more scope for you nailing things down in that that respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair, mate. Okay, so have we got anything? I mean, Worldland stuff is is probably not even that recent, is it? Have we got anything that's even more recent than that? I was trying. I mean, I've got <laughs> lots of other old stuff. I guess another good one to look at. Very recent. Uh, oh well, the Kickstarter was a while ago, but it's recently arrived. Is Impossible Landscapes for Delta Green? Right, 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 right. Which I I haven't got through yet. I've I've started reading. That's another one that's uh, highly loaded. It's another one where, like, really specifically, it's supposed to be surrealist in many ways. Mm. So that that is one you need to build. Almost build yourself a little bit. Like I said, I've not read all the way through yet, but just from from what I'm grasping, a lot of it will come down to characters mm. and how they're perceiving what's happening and how they choose to deal with it. And there's there could, there could be, you know, a million different ways of cutting it. To be honest, from that point of view. So it's another interesting take on not doing Temple of Elemental Evil. We've got levels and rooms to go in. It is kind of there are events happening and a story and a plot happening, but it's, it is deliberately surreal and weird and scary. Mm. So that's that's another interesting, not at all like Prelude to War, but in the aspect of here's some material to work with, and then you apply this to your players and see what happens and you mm. and adapt it. So that's that's probably another one to. To look at if you like your horror gaming, and that will be radically different than playing something like Masks or the other sort of big Cthulhu campaigns that always get mentioned. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I've I've had the same trouble as you then. So, and I, I think this just comes from the the playing that we we tend to do as we get a bit older. Is I don't play in that many campaigns. Mm. I, I haven't finished a campaign in a very long time, so I'm going way back in my memory to the campaigns that I've GM'd or played in. Um, and by definition there's going to be fewer of those than there is one shots um, and I can think back to my advanced Dungeons and Dragons day to when we strung together a bunch of adventures uh, and sometimes that was kind of done for you with the, the, the Giants series going into the Drow series I never really played those ones but um, I really enjoyed the Desert of Desolation uh, modules yeah, they were called cool. modules then loved them I, th- I thought Pharaoh was one of my favourite standalone adventures I've run it dozens of times really basically you know the film the mummy that's the adventure <laughs> really and um uh, and then the two sequels that came afterwards to make it a trilogy of adventures were all glued together and the and the locations got bigger and better each time as it fleshed out what became the desert of desolation i think originally it was just like here's an adventure in a sandy place right <laughs> and then it got bigger and better and it had some really jaw dropping kind of big encounters in it massive set pieces some really interesting stuff with uh, with a desert settlement and then a great big magical trap filled place. Peak D&D to be honest, which I really enjoy playing. I've played it many, many times. And I think it still stands up. you still got to do a bit of conversion work with it these days, but you could pick it up and play it with 5e if you wanted. And I recommend that you do. I recommend that some of those older modules 
um, that had really good adventure in them. For my money, and this is a form over and formatting thing that I wanted to bring up with you as well, Gaz, is when we used to string together modules and call it a campaign, even if you sellotaped them all together, you were under 100 pages. And now Wizards of the Coast, the who are carrying the torch for D&D, are every now and again release a pretty thick hardback volume with mm. what they call a campaign in it. It's not just an adventure, it's a campaign. They, they outsource the adventures, don't they, to people like you and me right. to do it through DM's Guild. But the campaigns are these big, thick hardbacks that are a little bit like the Paizo Adventure Path. They take you up to level 12, level 15, something like that. And they're kind of one and done. But these are big events for Wizards of the Coast. They sell a lot of these hardbacks, I'm sure. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. They've done maybe about 10 or so now. Maybe it's more. Um, and I've got a few. And I've always walked away a little bit uninspired from them. Mm. And uh, so I don't know what it is. I kind of miss the box sets that you talked about earlier that have got handouts and maps and slim magazine-like adventures within them often, didn't they? Yeah. The big hardback campaign book, like any big book these days, it becomes a bit homeworky. Yes. And that might have been what sort of soured me slightly on Stone Thief and why I probably won't pick up Impossible Landscapes, despite I know the quality that will be in there. Mm. It's just overwhelming. I think... The, the benefit of some of the old stuff and I have that same fondness you do and maybe part of it's nostalgia and what have you but the kind of 96 to 128 page box tended to be packed with gameable content is the difference uh, certainly compared to some of the D&D hardbacks I've got pages of stuff that I'm, I'm reading and thinking this does feel like homework and I'm not coming out of it with a cool idea for a scenario Yeah. whereas um, for Earthdown, I frequently mentioned Serpent River was a great thing. I've never found anything else that that guy's done. Like it's just an author wrote one game book and, yeah. and disappeared. It's a real shame. But that's 128 pages, and it's not a campaign. It's just a source book about a river, apparently. But every paragraph's got a cool thing in it. And mm. you know, you, I've run a campaign based on that book, so it's not technically a campaign. But I did a big journey all around the Serpent River, which cuts a big uh, inverse sea around. Letter C around bar save. I did tons of stuff that lasted weeks. That you know, that's and that was a relatively small book. So I think yeah. perhaps we have discussed before that people like big honking books and Dennis Detwiller, who wrote Impossible Landscape, so another stuff he he says that that's what people want from his research, and he, he should know he produces these things for a living. But, but as a punter uh, and, a, and a man who's relatively time poor, I guess, these days, what I want is a smaller book but with lots of cool stuff in it that I can immediately use. Um, so I guess it depends on your preference and availability of time for you and all the rest of it and whether you want value for money for things you buy but ultimately what, what I'm looking for anyway is, that, is the actual interesting things in there I don't yeah. care about workout it could be like you say a, a I don't know, 32 page book but if it comes with 100 ideas that's great, I'll, I'll take it yeah exactly and that's what's that what draws me for my recommendations for like the, the latest campaigns is to look at OSR stuff um, and some of the some of the real uh, real tight work that is done with formatting layout what have you but also just mad creativity so I would point our readers and listeners to stuff like um, ultraviolet grasslands mm -hmm. um, which is um, which is just mad but it's it's like the great Oregon trail but from a fantasy vibe and there are talking cats and that kind of stuff and an enormous map and you move from node to node and it's a big travelogue it's been one of those big exploration things 
um, and it's pretty nuts and pretty weird and these things can often get a bit too weird but it is it is definitely one of those flick through the book stop at a random place jab your finger on the page you are within two inches of something that's your game for tonight mm-hmm. um, similarly you could look at stuff like Operation Unfathomable can't even say that Fathomable um, which is uh, which is an underground again kind of crazy environment that there's enough campaign play in it not quite a mega dungeon but enough faction play and agenda based stuff that you can't fail but get something going on if you put the hours in it will repay you um, and my favourite is probably Hot Springs Island part of the Swordfish Islands which is a very small location relatively speaking it's, it's, a, it's an island but on that island there is so much going on Yes, it's hex-based, but no, it's not, because you're not going from hex to hex doing bits and pieces. So much of it is is generated procedurally by the GM the night before or the hour before your mates get round for the game, um, but it all starts spinning off little sub-tables and all the little plots and factions that are bubbling along in the background are just really, really sublime. There's no wasted words in it, none at all. You, you can read directly out of the book if you can't make it up yourself, and every word will be something that a player will want to investigate further mm-hmm. so they're, they're absolutely solid and none of these are massive works none of them are huge hot springs island's got a player's book which is like here's like an old journal that's been found by adventurers who've been there before so you can turn to your player's book page 32 and the gm will have like their version of it mm-hmm. with the secrets yeah. in which is nice but none of them are massive they're all relatively inexpensive and i think genuinely do yourself a favor and, and don't buy the Tomb of Annihilation or the Rime of the Frost Maiden or whatever those massive books coming out from WotC are because I just don't think I think they they just they're overwritten and over-engineered almost mm. and you've got there's, there's so much more happening um, in the OSR's field that will really deliver those kind of big campaign experiences for you there's too many to play yeah I'll, I'll just Listeners won't know because they can't see, but I'm playing bingo here. I've crossed off two more off my list of <laughs> things I'm going to mention. <laughs> there's lots wow. of blue lines through, through things. Yeah, I, I think um, there's, there's tons of stuff we could mention. Um, uh, we're going to have to stop though because we're hitting that sort of time. Yeah. I'll just mention Deep Carbon Observatory. It's easy to talk about OSR as mm-hmm. something people want to look into. So I've got I've kind of a little uh, summary note that I've made of kind of things that I might want in a campaign if someone's going to do one. And we've, we've yeah. mentioned about keeping it short and length there, but uh, let's see how these, I think, sort of six or so bullet points. Uh, you kind of want some um, some idea of the longevity of the campaign or its scope. So you either want to know that it's going to last for a certain amount of time or when it's going to end. You don't want it to one way or the other. Uh, we like a sandbox, sandbox element, so there's got to be ability to wander off the path of the stuff and come back to it um, which also comes with a caveat of the overarching thread so a combination of the two elements uh, I like the idea of location based stuff so there's places mm. to visit that comes back to your tourism journey kind of thing um, I've got flexibility as one um, so yeah again, I think that's a personal preference thing but I don't necessarily just want to be in a railroad like literally in the case of the Orient Express following something I want to be able to uh, perhaps as a, a GM even mix and match it a little bit or move things around or do things in a different order but you do want uh, and this is where the plot point stuff comes I think big or pivotal events with mm. ideally a, the combination of your campaign being one of those 
Uh, and then the bit we mentioned just there about sort of box sets and stuff, the thing I got was artifacts for the players. It's good to give them things, whether it be notes or journals or missives or puzzles or pictures of stuff. I think that's one of the things I miss from old campaign box sets and stuff is mm. things players can have and then keep with them, like in the little player journals. And when you turn up every week, they can open up and look through their stuff. And you might get callbacks to things. And they go, wait a minute, we heard about this three weeks ago. I've got to think about that. And something suddenly makes sense to them and that kind of stuff. So that, that's my like overview and quick bullet point form of what I think I want from a campaign. Yeah, so all of those are great, mate. Uh, to, I would add, not take away, but I would add resilience to your flexibility. So I think the campaign needs to be able to be something you can move about, but it, it can't break. Hmm. So you need to know what it is that's important that you have to keep because there has to be elements right. of that. It has to be resilient. Yeah. So And that means it has to be able to drop into your campaign world as well. Um, so that's part of that. And then the other thing that I would notice, it's just I think this is something that's so hard to do in reality. When you're reviewing stuff or reading it or playing it, it seems so obvious. I don't blame the writers for this at all. I think you've just got to have loads of reincorporation. So stuff that's going to be happening later in the campaign, you need to see early in the campaign. Maybe not interact with, Hmm. but just, you know, if there's a big bad at the end of book six and the only time you meet them is in the second half of book six, that's a a wasted opportunity. And similarly, stuff that you meet in the early stage of the campaign you want to come with you, that squire that you're introduced to in the first village who becomes like maybe a PC later on if somebody dies, but just generates that character or that mercantile company that's always sort of dogging you, no mm. matter what you do as you're doing your world tour. Right. You need to have call-outs. And I think the campaign's obviously a big works, sometimes written by multiple authors, and having each other's ideas seeded sort of regularly down the line of the campaign is something that sometimes falls away in the last minutes of publication. Yeah, gotcha. No, I agree, agree thoroughly. Very good. Well, wow. that, that's that's it for this campaign episode. I think <laughs> over an hour. So, so we'll leave it there. But um, yeah, out there in listener land, if there's major campaigns that we've missed and perhaps should review or talk about. Uh, let us know. Maybe we'll come back to this topic if there's lots more things to go on. I know people are going about Pirates of Drinax for Traveller, for example, or there's things like Band of Blades for Forging the Dark Games that we've been oh. speaking about. And yes. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. I'm sure Paves in Big Rubble and other things from RuneQuest people might want to discuss. So do let us know if you want a second edition of this because we can go back again. And uh, What do you want from your campaigns? Do feel free to tell us. Is there something we've missed? Is there some glorious thing that we're not seeing or that we should investigate further? We like campaigns. We mm. want to do more of them. I think we know that as we started off by saying it's where the good stuff is at. So as Gaz said, let us know about that good stuff. I'm more than happy to buy a campaign and never play it because I love reading them. Back when I was you know, a, a, a new gamer, every time I got into a new system, I would get the basic book, obviously, the next purchase would be the GM screen. The next purchase would be, if I could, the campaign. Because I always want to see how should this work. And that's what I did for Enemy Within. And it kind of teed me up for all the other games I've ever played since then. I would always get a campaign. Because it tells me more about the game than the rule book does sometimes. Excellent stuff. And thanks, as always, to our loyal patrons. Uh, uh, and anyone who likes, shares, or otherwise promotes the podcast, it is down to you and your continued support and warm words that we can continue doing this and you know makes us feel a warmer fuzzy inside as well 
yeah thanks for sharing everybody and it's really really good to see it see the names in the tipping us in the hat every month thank you so much for doing that couldn't do it without you until next time dear listeners bye bye <laughs>